and welcome to Economics in 10 with Pete and Gav. This is season seven, episode four of our award-winning podcast. And in each episode, we look at a famous economist and ask 10 questions that will hopefully inform you and get you thinking about their influence in modern society today. So, who are we looking at today, Pete? And why is he still so relevant? So, today, Gav, we are looking at Gary Becker, who in 2011 was described in a survey of economic professors, their favourite living economist over 60. Seems quite a niche, lad. (laughs) You're my favourite living economics teacher over 50. Uh, someone called Justin Wolfers described him as the most important social scientist in the, the past 50 years. Yeah, Friedman said. Friedman said, go on. The greatest social scientist who has lived and worked in the last half century. What I quite like about all of them, they all put a slight time element into uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it good... But if I included a bit more years, <laughs> yeah. Wonder, yeah, they probably took people like Adam Smith in there, though, wouldn't they? Yeah, of course. Yeah. But, you know. The but he's revolutionary. Let's, yeah, let's no. put this straight out there. This guy. And I, I think, is it the first? I, I saw Becca live. And I think this might be the first one. I don't think I saw Ellen Ostrom. I'm trying to work that out whether I did or not. Mm. But I definitely saw Becker because I remember being in the hall watching him speak. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, we'll get on to it. So, he won the Nobel uh, Prize for Economics in 1992. And I guess the reason why he is so um, infamous mm. or influential is he just broadened the scope of economics beyond just, you know the things that economics traditionally dealt with. Uh, so rather than just looking at uh, microeconomics, uh, as in the activities of firms and markets and macroeconomics, activities of whole economies, uh, he sort of said, no, economics can say lots and lots about all kinds of areas of just social interaction. Yeah. And so the, the, the book I always recommend, Niall Kishtani's uh, sort of short history of economics, the chapter in that book he, he, he is called The Economics of Everything. Yeah. So it's like he can apply the economic method yeah. to pretty much any area of social life. Which you know what I quite like because um, I was, you know, with that discussion, isn't there, about how do we get more women into economics? And, you know, they kind of talk about the reason it's kind of male dominated is because they think it's like, it's all about money. Mm. And so I've really switched up my thing over the last you know, a few years about the problem solving nature of economics. Mm. It's not, you know, like if you want to solve a problem, development, economic, globalize, whatever mm. it might be. Yeah. And Becker takes that even further, you know, oh, yeah. you want to look at this, use your economic analysis skills on that problem. Probably further than anyone. I remember when we studied Friedman, there's a kind of remorseless logic about freedom, yeah. Friedman, which just sort of emanates into every area of economics but with becker it emanates into every area of sort of social interaction i'm going to follow the logic of my principles into every area of social life anyway we'll come back to that no surprise that he obviously 
worked under Friedman, wasn't No. So and, he's his uh, best student. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another person who was inspired by Friedman's teaching. Yeah. I feel jealous of that. Every time people yeah, describe Friedman, I think, yeah. do people describe us like that? <laughs> <laughs> maybe they do. Maybe they do. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, they just don't say it to our faces. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I felt? Uh, there was a comparison to, when I used to teach sociology as well as economics, Emil Durkheim. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who very consciously chose uh, the study of suicide as a topic for to develop the sociological method. And it's almost like if you could apply sociology to so, what seemingly is such a personal sort of decision and topic, then it could mm. apply everywhere. Yeah. And there's a sort of element of that with Becker. You know, the economic method can, can go anywhere. And yeah. here's how. I'm going to use it to study areas which on the surface seem very unpromising, in terms of the economic method offering any great insight, yeah, such as you know discrimination, uh, interaction within families, but we'll come back yeah. to that. We'll come back well, to and, that. And, and like we're saying about him being revolutionary, he he kind of was laughed at, wasn't he? Mm. But he just kept going. <laughs> yeah, so, you yeah. know, no, definitely he was initially um, like lots of prophets in the Bible uh, rejected. Yeah. Yeah. People didn't like his messages. No. Yeah. Uh, so, should we... A bit uh, like our podcast. A bit like, <laughs> not at all. Very popular. <laughs> very popular and well thought of. Um, so Can we just say, before, we will crack on. Yes. But this is the first time uh, since the Pod Bible Poll Awards. Yeah. And we'd just like to, again, thank people for voting for us. Yeah. We came second yeah. in the Oh My Pod Independent Podcast yeah. Award, being beaten by... A true crime podcast, yeah. which we don't mind. We don't mind. We're just delighted we're in the top five mm. again for the fifth year running. Who so was thank it? you to our listeners for voting for us. Who was it who described second as first loser? Yeah. Well, let's not, let's not, let's not talk. <laughs> let's move on. Let's go. Let's move on. So let's provide some biographical detail about Becker first. Um, and we'll also touch upon... His life and time. So he's born in 1930, same year as my dad. Uh, and he, he dies in uh, 2014. So he's very much a contemporary of my father. So his full name is Gary Stanley Becker. And he's born in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. It's a, a, a Aaron and Irma Becker. I never know how to pronounce. Is it Aaron or Aaron? How's it spelled? A-A-R-O-N. I've always said Aaron, but I've heard yeah. other people say Aaron. Yeah, Aaron, yeah. Yeah, yeah difficult. Uh, his grandparents were Isaac and Sarah, and they emigrated from Russia in the late 19th century. Isaac was a tailor. Did I tell you a story about my great-great-grandfather? No, sorry, my great-grandfather. No. Thomas the Waistcoat Duffy. <laughs> Have I told you a story? Oh, I don't know. He was a tailor. Right. Uh, so that's my grandmother's father. And in our family records, he disappears for about five or six years. And the assumption was always, oh, he disappeared off back to Ireland. But we now think he was jailed because we found out, found out when we were studying sort of, you know, the genealogy, genealogy of our family that he burned down his own shop to try and claim on the insurance and got caught. Yeah. Classic EastEnders episode. Yeah. Have you got any felons in your family? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I reckon you have. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got... Um, He's got three siblings, uh, Wendy, Natalie and Marvin. And we'll come... Well, obviously, there's a lot of water to flow first, but he dies in the Chicago 
he's so closely associated with. Though mm. interestingly, I thought I just assumed he'd spent all his career there, but he didn't. No. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, Died of so, um, ulcer complications, wasn't it? Stomach ulcer complications, wasn't it? Yeah. Doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? <laughs> no. Uh, so, just to give you a sort of sense of his time, he's sort of a child of World War II America. So, if you think about being born in 1930, and this is where there is a, definitely an analogy with my dad, because he's old enough to remember World War II, but too young to fight in it. Yeah. So, in a sense, it's like. <clears throat> You know, my dad would be literally collecting fragments of bombs from his back garden, you know, during the Manchester Blitz. Yeah. yeah. That must have felt really exciting, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Becker would remember World War II and also, and I think importantly, the New New Deal era. Because if you think about it, when he's 10 or so, Pearl Harbor would have happened. And obviously he must have had clear memories of that. Um, so what, what's, what's your, can you remember much from when you were 10? Oh, I thought you were going to say from World War. <laughs> yeah, well, not that old. I know. We're talking before we went on air about how Gavin's feeling old. But, uh, uh, when I was ten, yeah. Well, yeah, I do. I do. I remember because I went to America uh, when I was about ten. And um, where did you go? Travelled up the east coast, and I remember seeing um, Return of the Jedi oh. uh, before everyone else, and coming home very excited about the fact that I've seen Return of the Jedi. Was that nineteen eighty three? Was it? Yeah, yeah, I remember seeing that. Around in that cinema. time, eighty three, eighty four. Yeah, uh, very clear memories of the nineteen eighty two World Cup for me. Yes, I remember coming home from school, seeing Bobby this- Robson's goal. Yeah, yes. Bobby Robson. Brian, Brian Robson. Robson. Yeah. Yeah. 27 seconds. I think yeah, I remember seeing that in my mate yeah. Johnny Newman's house. Yeah. Getting yeah. very excited. So, if I can remember the 1982 World Cup, I reckon Becca could remember Pearl Harbour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just put it out there. But what's interesting, I mentioned also the New Deal. And for those listeners who aren't aware, and I suppose if you're a non American listener, not that interested in sort of politics or economics, this is a, a big sort of interventionist. I guess, Keynesian programme that takes place as, in a, as a response to the Great Depression under the Roosevelt administration. So a big spending government trying to sort of pump prime the economy and sort of take it out of that deflationary period. And I suppose there's an aftermath of that in that, I suppose up until that point, American government is quite small. And it maybe ushers in a statist era, you know, and to a certain extent ever since then, American politics has been... A debate between people who uh, want the government to be smaller and yeah. people who want, you know, are quite happy with the government being interventionist and large. And obviously, as a member of the Chicago School, Becker would be a fairly prominent thinker who would be opposed to uh, that sort of status yeah. type government. And I, I wouldn't say the majority of his work is about macroeconomics, but it does sort of those sort of conservative tendencies mm. definitely do creep in, I think. Yeah. And you kind of think he's grown up in that New Deal era. His dad, as I'll, I'll say a bit more about his dad in a minute, is very much an entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. And you kind I of... get want... from him though, like, you know, he's not as free market as, you, as I first thought when I was reading yeah. about it. Because obviously he's going through that lens, isn't he, about incentives... Yeah. So there's just a lot of stuff about, well, the government could incentivise that. So he, yeah. he's saying, look, they can intervene in this market. Yeah. But they yeah. should do it in yeah. in this very sort of specific way. Yeah, specific yeah, way. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I sort of got some, this sense of sort of you know being a free marketer, perhaps not like Friedman. You know, you know, he's just oh, he's definitely a free marketer. Yeah. I mean, he wouldn't. The, where I saw him speak was at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Yeah, they don't be speaking there. Yeah, if, not Lenny Keynes in there. You know, sort of. You know, so, <laughs> rush him down on the way in. You know, <laughs> Keynes in. <laughs> Yeah, but his, his family would have fled from, well, it would have been Tsarist Russia, not sort of uh, Stalinist Russia, but it's kind of a totalitarian state. Mm. Maybe that left him opposed to that kind of yeah. central, sort of dominant government. But and, and certainly his dad was very much a sort of free marketeer uh, in the sense, in the practical sense, he's an entrepreneur. He leaves school, his dad, when he's in the eighth grade, living in Montreal, uh, as he was keen to make money. Yeah. yeah. Why is the eighth grade? What would it be then? Would that be like? Ooh. Sounds quite young. Uh, well, yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it seems quite young to me. The family seemed to move around a lot. I've always wondered. With thirteen to fourteen. All right. So yeah. Mm. So yeah, you wouldn't be able to leave school now. No, you wouldn't. What's that? So that's for us year nine. Isn't it? Year nine. Yeah. Yeah. You did used to be able to up until the nineteen sixties. That would have been school leaving age. And year nine are always the most. Yeah. Quite brutal, happy. isn't it? Quite happy to get rid of some year <laughs> The family certainly moved around a lot, particularly in the 1920s. I often wonder what, because there are some people who do that, don't they, for various reasons with their work. Yeah. Um, you know, what impact does that have on your outlook? Yeah. Because does it make you, and this is why I thought of it for Becca, he definitely looks at things with a very objective lens. Yeah. And I wonder if you do get that, that kind of permanent outsider Sort of mentality. Yeah, that's a good point. Interesting, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I think that's just cod psychology, but I thought of it, so oh, I thought I'd like share it. it. I yeah, like it. Good. Let's call it yeah. littlest hoboism. <laughs> well, the Hulk, the Hulk always used to have to move on. Yeah, exactly. The Hulk series, the, the original exactly. one with like, what's he yeah. called? Um, Lou Ferrigno in it. <laughs> uh, basically, he's trying to settle down, have a nice yeah. time, and then someone riles him. Yeah. Basically, breaks a few heads, a few cars, <laughs> and he's got. <laughs> He's got to leave town again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah maybe Becca's dad was like that. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's it. He just yeah. upset people and moved on. Yeah. But anyway, so. age four, he moves to New York City, to Brooklyn. Um, yeah. And I suppose, in a sense, throughout his upbringing, he's been exposed to the trials and the risks of entrepreneurship. Importantly, he is born Jewish. Yeah. And it's sort of, it's quite interesting because I sort of, was, I was trying to research, well, how important was that um, sort of Judaism to him it's not that clear no, in a sort of biographical detail but <clears throat> certainly i read on one website um that they were very much sort of oh yeah he's a sort of his jewish heritage definitely influenced his approach to his work there's one quote on one side it said his commitment to social justice and equality was rooted in jewish values of tikkun olam repairing the world yeah. nice Quite a nice idea, repairing the world. Yeah, it's it? nice, isn't it? Yeah, very topical, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, also, more trivially, there's uh, this website called Jew or Not Jew, uh, and because uh, I was just googling was Gary Becker Jewish because I thought, yeah. you know, early on, and apparently it's a quote from Becker's daughter, and she'd sort of put in the comments box, and this is I'm slightly dubious of this, but it said. Uh, my snobby stepmother couldn't stand that he was a Jew from Brooklyn and tried to pretend he was a goy, which I presume is a non-Jewish sort of Gentile person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I find that a bit dubious. Would Gary Becker's daughter 
sort of write in the comment box of due or not due the website. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It just sounds we a bit too fact checking there. Yeah, we need some yeah, fact checking. But I like uh, the fact that you found it. Yeah. Well yeah. done. Well, this is, you know, my research goes, what kind of crevices are <laughs> I just can't believe there's that website. Yeah. Due or not due. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So in his own words, because like always with Nobel laureates, there's a, always a great sort of personal biography, sort of autobiography, just a brief article yeah. on the Nobel website. Uh, and he went, he goes to elementary and high school in Brooklyn. He describes himself as a good student, um, but initially he's more interested in sport, yes. uh, particularly handball. Once he gets to, uh, I think, later on in his school career, he chooses math, even though he's better at handball. Yeah, he's a 16. To focus for his priorities. Yeah, that was his choice there. Choice yeah. between the math team and the handball team, yeah. and he chose math. You ever played handball? No. It just looks wrong to me. I, don't I get think it. it's just that diet of football, yeah. and like handball is just like, I don't know, everyone would just shout, a ball! Like that on the pitch, <laughs> wouldn't they? It'd be something terrible you'd done. It just looks like people running, just chucking a ball. Yeah. I don't understand the rules of it. But yeah. it, does, it doesn't matter. It doesn't it's, probably matter. Our, it's probably our ignorance there, though, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Can I, can I, have, you, have you stopped talking about him and his dad? No, I haven't. Okay. Right. I've got a couple more quotes okay. about his dad. Right. So, particularly, his dad loses most of his sight. Right, okay. And he, yes. he then, his dad sort of gets him to read stock quotations right. and other reports on financial development. Yeah, that's what I was wondering if you were going to say uh, that. And Becker says, perhaps it stimulated my interest in economics, but I was rather bored by it. Mm. Yeah. Oh, it's good. Maybe that's why he rebelled against what would be seen as tradition, traditional economics as people see it. Yeah, it's interesting, sort of, in terms of his relationship with economics. You get a sense of someone who falls in and out of love of economics yeah. several times. Um, so he must have been a good student. He ends up at Princeton. Yeah. And he studies an economics course. You often read this in our biographies almost by accident. Yeah. But there is this growing sense, and perhaps it is, does also de- uh, stem from sort of political debates at home, of wanting to have an impact on society. And what was quite unusual at the time, uh, and it, it does strike me, he's quite a rational, he's obviously quite a rational person. He decides to accelerate his Princeton course so he can get out and earn money a bit sooner. Yeah. Do you remember a few years ago, there was a debate here about two-year degrees? Yes. Remember that? It's yeah. sort of died a death, really, hasn't it? Yeah, or, and it probably should be restarted. Yeah. Definitely not four-year ones. Absolute yeah. rip. yeah. But there we are. The landlords won't let it happen. Is that right? It's your sort of cynical (laughs) capitalist sort of neo-Marxist view. Do you know uh, that in uh, 2008, the Princeton Alumni Weekly uh, ranked all the old Princeton alumni? Right. They got some guys in a room with a list of 250 of them. Yeah. Where do you think Gary Becker, in its 261-year history... Did Gary Becker end up on that list? Uh, 57th. 11th. Oh, that's quite high, isn't it? Yeah, it's high, yeah. James Madison. Do you know him? Yeah, president, yeah. Yeah, he was number one. (laughs) That's quite, makes it quite prominent. (laughs) Yeah. Did he wrote the Constitution or something? Who would be the most prominent person from your school? Uh, Probably Spandau Ballet. Oh, yeah. But what I was going to say is they they redid it a few years back. But do you know uh, Bezos goes there? He went there. Oh, did he? Yeah, he so he, he's now seen as like number one most influential. Me just as a bit of a thug. Yeah. yeah. But let's not have a go at him because we probably get stuff from Amazon, don't we? We do. <laughs> <laughs> Although we will encourage everyone to shop independent. Shop local. Where, shop local. where you can. 
Uh, so anyway, when he's a pretty, he kind of loses interest in economics at one point. And the reason for that is, to be honest, I felt a bit like this. This is when I did feel some affinity with Becker during right. my economics degree. He felt he didn't attempt to solve genuine social problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But part of the reason I felt that is just this sort of massive emphasis on maths, yeah. which I suspect he would have been keen on. <laughs> no, no, but that's, I think it, yeah, I read it somewhere as well. That it's, that's that deep yeah. dive into maths again, where you're just not actually... Sorry, when are we solving problems? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And anyway, he, he wants to transfer to sociology, but thought it would be too difficult. Isn't that strange, you know, if you compare that with how those sort of subjects are viewed as A-levels in this country? Yeah, I was going to talk about that a little bit Economics, rightly or wrongly, is viewed as kind of hard and sociology easy. Uh, But he's like, no, 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 no. Interesting. Well, I'm going to come back to that a little bit at the end. Yeah. If that's right. Yeah, very well. Yeah, of course you can, yeah. So he does his post postgraduate work at Chicago and, like many, falls under Friedman's spell. Mm. Yeah. Like loads of people, he describes as a kind of sort of a mesmeric teacher. Yeah. Uh, and very much inspired by him. He ends up as a, as a sort of prof at, at Chicago, but he moves on, which is sort of surprising in some ways because you kind of think, ah, oh, he's found his sort of spiritual home. Yeah. But he, he wanted some kind of intellectual independence, almost like I need to get away from here. I'm going to sort of develop my own thoughts. And he turns down a, a bigger salary at Chicago to go to Columbia and also takes a job at the National Bureau of Economic Research, located in Manhattan. Right. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's very happy with that. He says, I have always believed this was the correct decision, for I developed greater independence and self-confidence that seems likely if I remained at Chicago. Right. Yeah. Fair enough, yeah. So he marries. He's got two daughters. Uh, in 1954, he marries his first wife. Uh, but eventually he leaves Columbia in the late 60s. Do you know why? No. It's in part because he is disgusted by the weakness of the authorities, the university authorities, in responding to student unrest. So you get a sense of someone who's who's definitely a social conservative. It's like, look at all these bloody hippies. Yeah. Like, doing sit-ins, ruining the place while I just want to teach economics. Yeah, you get a sense of that. Yeah. Well... I've been reading a really good book recently. Uh, it's Quentin Tarantino's book about the cinema. Right. And uh, he talks about the films. I mean, he used to watch films when he was like seven or eight years of age that were, he shouldn't have been watching. Yeah. His mother just used to take him to the cinema with a, a, a bloke and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, the first one he talks about is this film called Joe, I think. Right. Where basically the whole thing is about killing hippies. Right. And it's, okay. re- it's really interesting. He ends up, you know, this... His dad basically ends up killing. <laughs> he meets a guy in a bar who's basically ranting about yeah. all these people, yeah. and then they go off on a killing spree, and he yeah. accidentally kills his daughter. Oh, yeah. <sighs> I was going to say maybe Beck would like that, but it sounds a bit more, a bit more extreme. No, I know, but a lot of those films are like that. Like Dirty Harry is a good example of that. Yeah. Like rallying against this kind of stuff. Yeah. So you know, which yeah. many people describe as a fascist film. Yeah, yeah, it's quite interesting. Anyway, sorry. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So he ends up after this period in Columbia back at Chicago, and he's obviously most strongly associated with the yeah. Chicago school. Yeah. And probably his second stint at Chicago, maybe he's gone away and shaped his thinking anyway, but this is probably his most fertile period uh, uh, of work. So a lot of the ideas we now associate with him, mm. probably that he won the Nobel Prize for, this is the period, if you like. Um Initially, and you mentioned this earlier, 
his view his, his views his ideas are not accepted he sort of says oh the younger generation were a bit more open to them but i think economists and sociologists almost disliked him equally mm. like the economists this isn't really economics and the sociologists almost you're stepping on our patch yeah yeah anyway we'll come back to that so just a couple of our tiny bits of um um biographical detail his first wife dies in 1970 but he does remarry to uh Gwiti. i almost yeah, certainly I know, pronounced that incorrectly the middle name as well nashat yeah uh, she's an academic historian yes uh, i think specialized in the middle east uh, and he also encouraged by her writes for business week and initially he's a bit like i'm not sure i can write sort of non-technical sort of stuff because obviously it's a a popular-ish sort of magazine for non-economists. But, um, but yeah, he likes it eventually. Yeah. Did he enjoys you, the discipline of it. Yeah. Did you come across a story about how they met? I did not. It's a brilliant story. Go on. Um, because it's kind of economics in nature. Mm. Uh, the two met haggling over the price of a dining room set Becker had advertised. Right. Becker refused to lower the price but said he would, allow, he would allow her to take the furniture and pay for it later. Um, I asked how come he wouldn't come down on the price, but he trusted me with the table before paying for it, she later recalled. He said, I didn't care about getting the money, but it was the principle. <laughs> I did not want to sell it below what it was worth. Right. What surprised me even more was when he asked me to dinner. So that's that was his little get in yeah. there. Come yeah. take you out. So they haggled over a pricing point. He refused to reduce his pricing. Yeah. Loss aversion. That's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I can safely say I don't know anyone who's met in a similar manner. No. Yeah. It's good, though, isn't it? It's all online dating these days. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Different world, isn't it, out there? Yeah. Right. Anyway, <laughs> so 1992 gets the Nobel Prize. Yeah. Uh, I think that's about it in terms of biography. Unless We should say like... that there's an... Uh, a, Becker Friedman Institute at the University of Chicago. Yeah. So, like, they they are ultimately interlinked. Definitely. Yeah. And that's basically it. Yeah. Um, so, should we move on and talk yeah, about his ideas? Yeah, I don't ideas? think I've got yeah. anything else. That's, yeah, that's brilliant. So, I'm going to... Oh, sorry. Can we think? Oh, no, we don't. We don't. No, Carry on. It's all part of... <laughs> it's all part of the seamless sort of transition between phases of the podcast, Kevin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. focus on three things in particular nice and you may have other things you want to talk about yeah uh, human capital love it yeah the economics of discrimination good which I think we wrongly gave to Friedman in his episode did we and now having researched a bit more it does seem it stems from Becker right okay yeah. and I'm also going to talk about rotten kid theorem good yeah you, you, any other ideas you want to talk about crime I'll come to crime as well, slightly. Well, I thought you can talk about crime. Right. And I'll come come back on it. Okay. Uh, when right. it comes to criticism. Yeah. yeah. So I'll talk about human capital first of all. I'm not going to talk about that very much, but the term human capital yes, I was uh, really comes, surprised. From, comes from Becker. Yeah. And in a sense, this is almost, because a lot of his thinking, I think, 
is sort of microeconomic in nature. But in a sense, there's a contribution here to microeconomics. You think about when it this work or this term sort of appears on the scene in 1960, there's a really strong interest in economic growth. And I guess what he's doing with this term human capital is bringing people to the centre of this debate, which yeah. I think is quite, um, quite useful. Because in a sense, whenever I explain productivity in, cl- in class, I always say, look, output per worker productivity is determined not only by capital, the machine, but also the attributes and skills of the people working on them. And you could argue that Becker is responsible for the emphasis on the latter. Yeah. You know, it's all about the people. If people have the right skills, the right mentality, then that is human capital yeah. and that can help accelerate economic growth. And I, I guess he certainly deserves credit for that. It's very much in common parlance now. And we maybe take that for granted because I can imagine the 1950s particularly, there being this, uh, you know, really strong emphasis on just capital, 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 yeah. you know, machinery, machinery. And then, and. I think he said, mm, "Yeah, but." but did, did you? We we were you surprised it was that phrasing was so late, or not really? I no. I was I was like I just assumed it had been around for ages within the economics yeah. kind of lexography. Is that the word? Yeah, maybe. I don't know, but, you I don't know, know. but then to see that he was the guy who was like, right. I think before capital. that, labour is almost just seen as this homogenous lump. Yeah. I think capital is as well in a lot of economic modelling. Mm. But he's saying, no, labour is not, well, this is my take on it, not homogenous. Sort of, yeah. but, you know. Well, it's not homogenous because ultimately you are making yourself, you're differentiating yourself yes. through understanding you need to invest in yourself. Yeah. So. And I suppose as you move forward as well, it, it does help inform debates about development economics. Probably not when Becker's writing, but... Uh, you know, when we teach development economics now, there is that sort of, well, it's not all about infrastructure. It's yeah. also about sort of human capital as well. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So anything else you want about human capital? Well, I think we should point out is that opens up the world of student loans and stuff. Because what you are now trying to explain to students is you've got to do some sort of cost-benefit analysis. yeah. With regards your own human capital, so yeah. you kind of think right. It's like investment, loans, yeah, it's like investment appraisal. Exactly that. Yeah. You're doing that. You're thinking mm. right. Nine grand, twenty-seven grand a year. Probably get a maintenance loan, five grand, whatever that will be. So that's another fifteen grand on top of that. Yeah. So then you're thinking right. Does that logically kind of work out for me? Still worth investing that forty-seven or whatever mm. grand it is into myself to then enter a job at a higher kind of realm. And this is kind of what's, I think, quite interesting. That I mean, I was showing today a, a, a Ross Atkins programme about productivity and, and the this kind of old social contract that you expected to be better off than your parents yeah, yeah, and so on. Yeah. And they were saying that that's sort of coming to an end. Yeah. And that's the thing is that, are, is there gonna, are we getting to a stage where now that cost-benefit analysis of investment in human capital actually now yeah. turning the tide as it were see you need another sort of piece of chicago school economics here friedman's 
a permanent income. Yes. You know, yeah. hypothesis. Oh, sorry. Well, yeah, it's permanent income, isn't it? Life, life, life income. Lifetime income, income yeah. hypothesis. What have we got? But the whole idea of you're not just factoring your income now, but over the course of your career. Yeah, and that is difficult <coughs> Difficult to do. Really it's like difficult. that idea of the future. It's and really stuff difficult like now because you think a lot of the variables which past data may be based on, you might have a certain proportion of the population in the past who are graduates. Um, there's so many different variables you've got to chuck in there, like AI and all of this. So if you're making a decision yes. now about like that kind of investment appraisal decision about universities, it's much more difficult than sort and there's of 20, the, there's 30 years ago. there's that weird data, isn't it, that if you enter the labour market in a recession, your lifetime earnings stay lower than if you've entered the, in a boom time. Mm, so just those little, like you start mm, in like, mm. <laughs> and it takes you four years to get to wherever you're going to yeah. go. You have no idea what yeah. it's going to look like. Yeah. It's the whole thing. But that that's what got me about that human capital. It, mm. That emphasis now on like, this is why you can have that kind of intelligent discussion, I suppose, and why maybe it shouldn't be as controversial the student loans thing, even though I'm still sort of against it. But, you know, when the government came in, we've got to do something because it is about the private benefit to the individual. Yes, there are these social benefits. We could talk about mm. externalities. But the, the individual should be thinking yeah. about, well, hold up, I am gaining some yeah. stuff here. Is it now worth it for me yeah. to look at 46 grand? I'm going to pay it back over time. But ultimately, if my average income is going to be a lot more, yeah, then so be it. And, yeah. it, you know, it still looks like it's still worthwhile getting a degree. Interesting. That's a really interesting debate. Um, anyway, so, go on to your next one. No, we'll move on from that. And Becca, and this is probably, maybe, along with crime, uh, the most controversial area, and this is the economics of discrimination. And there's one, uh, I'm sure it's quite a complex argument in some ways, but there's a simple observation at the centre of it, which discrimination obviously has consequences of people being discriminated against, but it also, in his view, has consequences for the people who discriminate. So in a sense, if um, discrimination means that um, black workers don't get as much as similarly qualified whites in the labour market, then the discriminator is going to lose out because they're going to be paying more for similarly sort of able workers. Uh, so there is a cost to the, to the black person, but there's also a cost to the discriminating employer. They're missing out on cheaper potential productivity. Yeah. <clears throat> and I suppose the implication of that is, oh, you know, eventually it'll be irrational to be sort of racist, you know, or that there'll be a, a model whereby black people will end up moving to areas where there's least discrimination. Mm. I don't know. Well, he then kind of uses an example, doesn't he, that it depends on the popula population yeah. size of the minority exactly, as well. Yeah. The, so he's saying that for Jewish workers, it because there wasn't enough of them, mm. they could find enough non-racist yeah, employers. employers. But if you're black, you can't. You can't. Yeah, and, there's and, too many. And that creates that kind of problem. Yeah. And he's saying then that's why in South Africa, apartheid sort of yeah. broke down because it was like, eventually, yeah. you can't do this, basically. It's sort of controversial, isn't it? Because he's almost saying, oh, you know, discrimination is just a preference like any other sort yeah. of... Um, you can look at it in the same way you look at any market where people have preferences. And for some people, that's offensive, you know. And yeah. I, I get that. I think it, I, I, think I find it slightly yeah. offensive. What, what about you? Yeah, and, and that th that's the yeah. thing that we kind of said... Um, during the Friedman podcast 
about how he then took that kind of on. I don't. I didn't really read this in Becker, but Freeman was basically saying that's why you shouldn't have equality laws, didn't he? Remember when yeah, we spoke yeah, about yeah. that because he says you, what you don't want is no. He was saying that you want the producer losing out yeah, by yeah. discriminating, you know, by employing, you know. Some rubbish white guys, like yeah, the talented exactly. black guys. Yeah. Uh, because then the other guys would have a cost advantage. And yeah. so that's, you know, and, and they can get a job. Yeah. Um, when, if you have equal pay, yeah. you know, that yeah. discrimination is probably more likely to happen. Yeah, and I think, to be fair, I think it's, in some ways, it's a novel way of looking at things. Yeah. And why not, as part of the debate, this could be a contribution. Yeah. But I think... I don't think it's all the debate. Maybe you would claim... I mean, I think, like, um, preferences... He's not saying that preferences are fixed. So in a sense that society and factors outside the individual could be changed, I suppose. Mm. So it's not like the discriminating employer needs always to be racist. But I suppose he's at this current point in time, then this is an analysis which bears fruit. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot. We're probably not going to do it justice in there, but there's quite a lot in in his work with regards to discrimination that you kind of got. To, yeah, it's there's a, quite a lot of technicalities in there. That yeah, it's a lengthy book, and uh, yeah, it is. It's a, it's a lengthy book, yeah. and we have like we always do. We've crudified it enormously. <laughs> <laughs> but but again, I mean, the the point I suppose is is so revolutionary. Once again, yeah, no, it's it's, it's certainly novel, and it's a sort of a fresh way of looking at that debate, I yeah. guess, is uh, is the fairest thing you, you can say about it. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, um, the last one I wanted to talk about is Rotten Kid Theorem. Yeah. Did you come across that? Well, this is... this is Ultimately, we should say that this comes under the umbrella of cost-benefit analysis of family life. Yeah. All of it is about rational choice theory to a certain extent. And like, so, you know... There's variations on a theme, rational choice and people behaving rationally. So how many kids you have will be based on like, you know, like a a movement these days to having quality children over quantity of children and those kind of things. And who should stay at home? Should it be the woman who's maybe more used to child... Yeah. you know and that kind of stuff well, always whereas there's in... an opportunity cost yeah. with the male staying at home and, and so that is a very controversial area of Becker yeah but there's, we'll there's always tends to, to be with a lot of these theories him and free there's a sort of there's a kind of a remorseless logic about it but there's an underpinning sort of social conservatism which I never think is brought to the fore yeah. enough yeah to be fair going back to sort of discrimination he does talk I think about um Maybe this is in the debate upon crime about it's not just about, you know, productivity can be baked in even before you get to the workforce through sort of racism in society, in education, particularly. Yes. Yeah, no, he does talk so about that because he much says more, if you think they are less productive, then they don't see the point of actually gaining yeah. human capital. Yeah. So they end up being less productive. Yeah. And then they're not worth the money anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's almost like, well, you know, no. almost the racist structures of society yes. can mean that yeah. before we even get to this market, yeah. you know, they're in trouble kind yeah. of thing. Because, but yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, rotten kid theory. So we're going to start with, so as you say, this is almost the prime rational uh, choice theory 
uh, to how families work. Yeah. yeah. And we, we should say that we did talk about some of this in a, a love special. We did, yeah. Uh, but and, and do you know what? Valentine's Day is coming, coming up. up yeah. People could lift, listen to that again and yeah. enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so Rotten Kid Theorem, let's imagine uh, this little thought experiment. We've got a wealthy altruistic parent and, you know, they've got money to dish out to their children. And what this is basically saying that selfish children have an incentive to be harmonious and kind to their siblings, even if they don't really want to be. Yeah. So there's certain assumptions here. We've got to start off with a, a wealthy family head. Yeah, let's call him, I don't know, Derek. Head of the family is altruistic and wishes to give money to help his children. It assumes as well, and to be honest, loads of economists love this. It assumes perfect information about the welfare of the children. Yeah. yeah. Uh, parents will use their welfare, wealth as well to compensate for any misfortune to their child and they care equally about the happiness of each child. So there's the assumptions. Okay, so let's get to Rotten Kid Theorem. So we've got a selfish child. Let's call him Gavin for, for the sake of argument. Yeah. He's mean and unkind to his sibling, Pete. Mm. I'm now going to be worse off. For example, you've just broken all my toys. Yeah. yeah. So I've got my treasured sort of Playmobil. Yeah. Playmobil, I like Playmobil, yeah. All my Playmobil stuff, you've... Smashed it up. You've smashed it up. Yeah, I'm sort of very upset about this. Now, I've been impoverished by your unkind actions. So our wealthy father, Derek, he's decided to give me additional help. Uh, So now, in the future, because Derek's helped me out... It's less available for you. Yeah. You're going to get lower payments in the future. Yeah. yeah. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I'm gutted about it. So he will, you will therefore gain less financial rewards if you are mean to me, yeah. if you do break my Playmobil. Yeah. If you understand that, you've now got a financial incentive to be harmonious. So if you create problems in our family, you're going to lose out. Yeah. So you've now got an incentive to be a nicer chap. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, it's interesting because um, I think there's a quote, isn't there, from him? I think it was in his Nobel speech about um, unlike Marx, I don't think everyone is purely about self-interest. I also think about altruism as well. Yeah. And that's kind of quite interesting because, again, you think of him as a free marketeer and it would be solely around self-interest. But here he is sort of being a, you know, an originator of kind of behavioral economics and understanding that it's not all about self-interest. You are social influence of others as we have to teach about on our course. Yeah. Being altruistic and saying, right, I understand all these different motives that come into my decision-making play, which again is quite revolutionary in thought. It is. Of the three things I've looked at, I thought this was nonsense. (laughs) I really did. Did you not? No, but I think his family stuff isn't it because you are thinking about... Every time you add a say an extra kid into the pot, you are there's an opportunity cost in terms of your time well, and, and all that kind of stuff. The rotten kid theorem, though, come on, I don't think kids think like that at all. But, but they probably do in later in life when you're getting to a stage where your parent is writing your will and thinking, right, how are they going to give the money? And oh, so and so's been a pain in the backside. Yeah, but, but that's a very specific you know. case, and I'm not sure that's the case that he uh, talked about. Yeah. <laughs> you get, I mean, to be honest, yeah. I can understand why, why that... Maybe that, this is an know. argument in favour of scrapping inheritance tax then. I'm surprised it's not been put forward by the IEA or someone. 
yeah, maybe. Yeah. It's only a matter of time, you know. No, no. But I thought, I, I, I mean, the, for me, this is either a suite of ideas. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and they're all, you know, uh, they're all the sort of applying this kind of yeah. remorseless logic to different social spheres. Yeah. It's interesting, but whether that actually... Because what, what is economics ultimately? Surely it's supposed to help us understand the world around us. I don't look at that theory and think it gives a plausible sense of how families work. I don't think they compete for financial resources as much as anything else. I think they compete for attention within families. Yeah, I do get that. Yeah. Yeah, but maybe I don't... rotten kid theory probably does drag time away, doesn't it? They probably get more time. Yeah. Because there's, you know, and so they actually see that as a reward yeah. to, to muck about. So, so we're debunking wrong kid theory then, yeah? Well, I'll come back to it in criticisms, yeah? Yeah, go for it. So did you want to talk about crime? Well, I think we should say about crime, because it's on. a funny one, isn't it? Because he was driving to a lecture one day, it was a bit late, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, I love that yeah, story. And yeah, and he was like, right, shall I park illegally, or should I be late to my lecture and try and find a park, park, parking space? And he kind of weighed up the pros and cons, he did his own little cost-benefit analysis, thought, I'm just going to park it here. Yeah. And he didn't get caught. Yeah. And he was saying that that think his own thinking got him thinking about the criminal yeah. system or the criminal mind. That is that what ultimately criminals do? Yeah. They're constantly weighing up. And so once you kind of think about that, do you then think well, harsher yeah. punishments would then lead to a reduction in crime? You yeah. Know? And so I think he talked yeah. as well, didn't he, about criminals being rational first yes. of all, and you can increase the deterrent effect. Yeah of laws by either increasing the probability of being caught or the length of the sentence. Yeah, longer prison sentences. And in a sense, um, yeah. you wouldn't necessarily need more police if you had longer sentences. Yeah. Like, as long as, it's almost like a, one could go up, the other could go down. Yeah. But this is where he comes in again, speaking about, uh, I mean, it is sort of about the self-interest, but also people do, are genuinely quite nice. So yeah. you are looking at a very small section of the community and it's how you deal with them. Mm. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's, again, quite interesting. Yeah. yeah. So should we move on and talk about critics? Because I'll come back to crime in that Well, section. I would just say, the, 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 obviously, what a hot topic at the moment in our country is obviously immigration. Yeah. And that is the talk I saw him discuss at oh, the right, IEA. Okay. And his idea was basically um, that, you, you know... You, you should be able to buy in, basically. Right. And he's put a figure on it of like 50 grand. Right. You can see the talk online. So you basically get a loan of 50 grand that you're going to pay back to the government. Right. And that lets you in, basically. Right. So you okay. buy your way in. Right. I mean, we see rich people do it anyway, but he's basically <laughs> saying, look, and then what they're doing is they're doing a cost-benefit analysis. Right, if I end up in this country, yeah. will I be able to earn enough to pay back the 50 grand upfront loan that I'm going to get. Yeah. And if I do, then I'll go. If I don't think I will, because I think I'm going to be mistreated as an immigrant or whatever, then I'm not going to come. But we've got free movement there. So you, you still have had that. Yeah. You know, I remember being in that room and thinking, this is bad. <laughs> like 50 grand. I mean, like... Yeah, it's a lot of money. Like someone who's trying to get on a boat or whatever. You're yeah. kind of thinking... So what's his rationale? What, 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 are, what are the systems that, that enable that to happen? But he pl he did say he plucked a figure out the air. It was classic. Now having read about it, it was classic Becker. It's like I'm going to throw an idea out there, yeah. and you lot can work out the details. But it's an interesting idea, 
And I, 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 again, I can't, you know, like when we talked about the fox and the hedgehog, yeah. it's that kind of thing again, isn't it? Here's my big idea always yeah. is, look, like an immigrant, they are thinking about cost benefit analysis. Yeah. And at the moment, maybe the benefit outweighs the cost. Yeah. You know, if they can pay, you know, a couple of grand to go over a chop, you say, yes, the cost obviously could be death. But if they get to where they get to, the benefits really outweigh that. So can we push up the cost on a legal framework, you know, whatever. So, you know, I suppose that's what they're trying to do with the, you know, the disincentive of going to Rwanda. (laughs) I mean, it is classic cost benefit now. You think, well, I'm going to go all that way and they're going to stick me on a plane to Rwanda. You could argue it's Becca thinking. Yeah. Probability of being caught versus. Yes. Is there's that. Yeah. And the kind of. Exactly. Length of sentence. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an, Will I go to Rwanda? Be, but the, the thing is, I mean, we've covered there what? Immigration, family, discrimination, cr- cr- uh, crime, we've done crime, it, you know, and then we did the human investment or yeah, university or whatever. Yeah. So that's like five or six areas, but yeah. that's not the end of it. It's like the, the, no, the, no, just it's everything past, gets yeah. put on, you know. Well, like the economics of everything. Yeah, and, 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 and exactly yeah. right what you said. Right. Okay, so. We heard about his ideas. What did the critics say about him and, and his ideas? So, Alex Tabarrok, Marginal Revolution Man. Yeah. He's largely a fan, I would say, of Becker, but he does critique his views about crime. Um, so, like like we were saying earlier, there's an assumption that criminals are rational and that... And Becker's kind of like, you can deter crime in two ways, either increase the probability of being caught or increase the length of the sentence. And they're kind of interchangeable. And I think Tabarrok's coming at it from a sort of an empirical perspective, saying, look, loads of sentences in America have increased. Hasn't worked. Yeah. And in large part, from his perspective, criminals are not always rational. And there's more of an impulsive element, perhaps, to crime than Becker allows. Um, it's a really good article, actually. We should post it. Right. Because yeah. I, he's, not, he's not coming at it from a kind of Becker, you know. he's. I yeah. think he's generally a fan of Gary Becker. It's kind of a balanced argument quite fair what I thought and I'm, I'm this is my inference from it not Alex Tabrox but I think it highlights a kind of lack of flexibility in his thought maybe and similarly I mean well in, in a sense there's not enough of an emphasis on impulsive behaviour in criminality you know and and the, I'd, I've already sort of made the point about rotten kid theorem I don't think they'd necessarily do compete for funds and resources maybe he would say well attention love it's they're still resources they're yeah. not um, yeah not financial resources, I don't think. Um, interesting inheritance, though, because I was reading in one article saying that there is an implication for in- inheritance. Um, and this is kind of the point you were making. Uh, parents are looking to bequeath inheritance to their kids. Their kids, if they're being an idiot, as adults, certainly, they'll be like, right, we're not leaving them anything. Yeah, mm-hmm. So maybe it gives adult children an incentive to get on with one another because yeah. there's that threat they won't get anything in the will. Um, might encourage them to look after their parents a bit more yeah. if they sort of feel, oh, inheritance might be but, coming but, my way. But there is your classic cost-benefit analysis that Becker kind of does, isn't yeah. it? Is that the parents are working out from a cost-benefit analysis how many kids do they need to look after themselves <laughs> later on in life? Yeah. Well, interesting you should say that because... Um, the uh, I, was, I was listening to the Duflo and Banerjee book, Poor Economics. Have you read that, Brett? Yeah, yeah. I was listening to the audio book of it. And it's really, in, really interesting book. But part of it is talking about why 
in developing countries, people might have more kids. And it's an entirely irrational decision because if you don't have um, children potentially to look after you in old age, you're buggered, aren't you? There's no mm. safety net. There's no NHS or social security or old age pensions in many countries. If you have nine kids, two of them might be nice and look after you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> some yeah. of them might, even if they all survive childhood, some of them might just not look after yeah. you. But nine, surely one of them will do it. Yeah. <laughs> I read today about... Um, the, the there was a link between interest rates and having children. Mm. If your interest rate is high, and you've got savings, basically as a mm. rich person, then you you will have more children because right. you've obviously got the interest to uh, provide for back them. On, yeah. And then once the interest rate comes down, you're going to have less children mm. because you can't <laughs> you can't afford it. Interesting. Anyway, have you got any other critics? Uh, well, or criticisms? I, I um, when I was reading through the whole thing. I remember the concept when we look at Ricardo, the idea of Ricardian vice. Yes. Do you remember that? Apparently Schumpeter uh, came up with this. I didn't realise that. Oh. Schumpeter came up with a criticism of Ricardo. And there's a quote here, piling a heavy load of practical conclusions upon a tenuous groundwork. And I kind of think that's where I come down to with Becker. It's, it's, there's a logical flow to a lot of his arguments, but the practical conclusions of them, for me, don't follow from a particularly strong empirical base. Mm -hmm. Has he actually ever looked at families and how they work in practice? I suspect not. Gosh. We'll put his book up, which is the Treaties of the Family or something, yeah. isn't it? Well, do you think he has? Well, I assume he's done something. I think it's just logic. <laughs> it's just the application of logic. Yeah. It shows me thought experiments, which are interesting. Yeah. But do they actually you know, bring us closer to the truth. Yeah. I think they give us an interesting perspective. Even the discrimination one, it makes you uncomfortable, but you kind of think, is there something in that? It makes you think about it. Yeah. yeah. Right, any other critics for you? Well, that was the thing. I mean, I found this article from the LA Times basically saying, look, you know, when Becker celebrates winning the Nobel Prize, many women scholars across the country are steamed, some are pulled. And there's an economist here. It says, if women, working women really understood what he was saying, it would make them furious, said economist Sylvia Ann Hewlett, author of When the Bell Breaks, The Cost of Neglecting Our Children. Becker's critics say he uses esoteric theorems and equations to come up with traditional assumptions that perpetuate, uh, perpetuate roles detrimental to dual-income families. Consider the wage gap between men and women. Becker points out that if women carry more responsibility at home, they may choose to work part-time and thus receive less training for promotions at work. But Hewlett responds, what he totally forgets about an enormous constraints, society has no supports for childcare, society still doesn't have parenting leave. Obviously, women are not ex exercising free choice. And he said, Becker also has written that it's more efficient for working wives to do the lion's share of the housework because in general, they are paid less in the workplace and their time is less value. It's crazy, said one university sociology. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there you go. He says it, Becker said, a lot of people criticise me, they claim all sorts of things, some of it's misunderstanding and some of it's substituting what they like to see for a realistic analysis of the situation as it is. And it is quite interesting because you do get a sense mm. of that. Like most men probably do her more. So therefore, yeah. naturally you then go... Yeah. But that's almost that taken at yeah. face value. Well, because it's always been like this, it has to be like this. Yeah. And if you do accept that, then yeah, it follows from that. Yeah. But it's... There's an underlying conservatism in that. Yeah. Whereas it's not like, oh, we need to change this and then then, well, the, then the rational choices will change. Yeah. So but, if the but, structures change, then the sort of the appraisal, the cost benefit yeah. analysis will change. But see, the thing is like this 
Yeah. Maybe you wouldn't disagree like, with that. I don't know. No, but the, but there's he, definitely a conservative this, this Sylvia and Hewlett, who's obviously as an economist is really critical of this. Mm. It was interesting to find out that you know the third woman to win the Nobel Pro- Economics Prize, uh, Claudia Godlin, mm. um, is basically a student of Becker, right? And finds Becker's work incredibly powerful for basically highlighting. Yeah. the discrimination issues yeah. and then she then says well this is then how you can make yeah. everything even you need to have more childcare in the you need oh. to make sure there's more parental leave yeah. so she is in in support and that's where she, you know as a Nobel Prize winner the first woman to win it independently mm. you know that you kind of listen to anything yeah actually maybe he was yeah. fighting the good fight for women but that's quite controversial to say yeah. in, in light of that article. Oh, I think, do you know what it strikes me? Just you can almost layer whatever you want on him. Yeah. Exactly. I, I think exactly. he's conservative. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm laying it on there. Yeah. Food time. What are yeah. we eating today, Pete? There's a spurious link with Becca. Well, did you do some um, logical thinking, cost benefit analysis thing? The cost of my time. Do you know what I did a bit tonight? It's yeah. not worth it for the benefit Gav might get out of it. I did. I've gone for something quite simple, but I'll, I'll talk about it in a minute. It's so obviously, I always love this, looking up the Nobel Banquet. Yeah. Uh, do, you to, do, do you want to hear some of the menu? Yeah, go on, yeah. go for it. So, Can you say uh, any of the words from it? Yeah. Terrine de Saumon et de Sol à la Neige. Is that salmon pâté? I think it's salmon terrine uh, with pate, some kind it? of fish something or other. Uh, with, no, I don't know what this is. It's like egg sauce or something. <laughs> My French is quite limited. Oh, and there's roast lamb. Nice. Uh, with seasonal mushrooms. That sounds nice. Yeah, it does it? sound nice. Uh, yeah. Cider sauce. Yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, glass Nobel au chocolat blanc. Chocolat blanc. All right. So white chocolate with a glass Nobel, whatever that is. Yeah. Nobel ice cream. Yeah. yeah. wonder what the Nobel ice cream is. I don't know. Uh, and some nice drink actually um, Moe Chandon Brut <laughs> Imperial Lovely. what year 1984 Chateau <laughs> Mouton Baron Philippe I bet that's a nice bottle isn't it yeah, yeah. yeah. oh there's no official recipe for Nobel ice cream it consisted of elderly strawberry parfait one year and blend of chocolate ice mm. cream and blackberry sorbet the next Oh, interesting. There you go. Right, so I did go for a cost-benefit analysis, and I know that you're not really drinking because you're driving in a bit, but I went for a Chicago cocktail. Nice. Yeah, so you can have a little taste. Yeah, I'll have a taste. Yeah. So, yeah, I just thought, you Be know... One of, my, one, my, one of my eight units. Maybe <laughs> Friedman and Becker, you know. They probably had one of these, yeah, didn't they? Pro- almost certainly. Yeah. 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 Love oh. it. I like to think now we're about to... Pretend we're Becker and Friedman. Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> right, I'll go and, and fix you one of them and then we'll come back and have a little sip, a little snifter. Yeah. So, Gav, we're yeah. back in the room. Yeah. And now you've got your Chicago cocktail. Mm. Mm. What do you think? Mm. Mm. <laughs> Is that positive feedback? What do you think? It tastes like... A kind of slightly gone off Prosecco. What do you think? Well, it does have Prosecco in it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's nice. 
Yeah, I'm going to put it. He's got a kick there. He's got a kick. He's got a kick. Look, while while we're having this, uh, what's it called again? Uh, that is a, just called a Chicago cocktail. We've got a quiz. Right. Didn't you say I needed a pen and paper? Yeah, no, I've changed it. Oh, good. <laughs> but on. I reckon you'll definitely get two out of five. Okay. Like that, yeah. But after that, basically, it's about rotten kids. Okay. Good. Okay, and it's it's just a question, Pete, I'm afraid. There's no options? No. Dennis the Menace from yeah. the Beano had a dog called Nasher. Wasn't the question. Oh. <laughs> but he also found this out today had a pet pig. Yeah. What was that called? Rasher. Yeah. Yeah. I was a member of the Beano fan, cl- uh, fan club. Uh, I yeah. thought you would logically work it out because yeah. originally my plan was to give you a lot of logic <laughs> puzzles. Yeah, yeah. But they, it seemed quite long. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Who was the rotten kid in Matilda who ate all the cake? Ah, oh, do you know what? I've not seen Matilda. Ah, what? I thought you were doing this one. This is one of my two. Rotten kid? <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know. When he's eating all the chocolate. And they're all like, yes! No, I don't know. Oh, Bruce Bogtrotter. No, never read it. There'll be people shouting at the podcast. Yeah, have I you think. said like Augustus Gloop or something from Charlie and Chocolate yeah. Factory? You remember? Never read it. Okay. Never seen it. It's got a revival, hasn't it, at the moment? There's some kind of yes. play in London. Okay, here we go. This is one I think you won't get. But I did wonder about Olivia and Reed. Okay, yeah. In Diary of a Wimpy Kid, oh. who is Greg's horrible brother or best mate? Give me your choice of two there. Uh, Nigel. No. <laughs> who is it? This is for our American uh, friends listening. Yeah. Roderick. Uh, because the sequel to the Diary of Wimpy Kid uh, film is called Roderick Rules or his best mate is called Rowley okay this one I'm thinking you're going to get okay who bullied Roland on Grange Hill (laughs) what's that Gripper Stebson yes yes (laughs) for our foreign listeners Grange Hill was uh, uh, it's like a documentary Gripper Stebson was a horrible kid (laughs) It's a sitcom based in London, isn't it? Yeah. Great, great chill. And then finally, can you name the four rotten kids on South Park? No. Don't like South Park. You not even get you get one of them. I don't know even. I'm shocked. Your jaw has hit the floor. I'm sure. I thought you get Kenny. Oh yeah! Oh my God! They killed Kenny. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, Uh, Eric, Kenny, Stan, and Kyle. I've got two. You said I get two. I've got two. Just didn't get the right, the right two. two. Well, well done. Okay, so that's the end of uh, the old food round. So, new question that we've been thinking about. Uh, We like to compare our economist to someone, whether it's a Star Wars Mm. character or someone from James Bond. But this season, we've decided to widen our search. What fictional character is Becca most like and why? Yeah. We always end up going, when we do economists like Becca, for some kind of uber-logical character, don't we? Like Sherlock Holmes or Spock, Commander Data. Uh, Not quite literally, but Sheldon from The Big Bang Theory. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to make it more literary in the spirit of the question. What Dr. Frankenstein? But remember, he's not the monster. Might. 
Yeah, you know. Yeah, no, I got yeah. Logical thinker, maybe not thought through. Maybe the ethical dimension <laughs> of all his yeah. work <laughs> might be doing him a disservice. Yeah, who, who are you going for? Well, you know, you kind of highlighted it there. I mean, because I, I thought exactly the same thing about logic and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've already done yeah. that, haven't we? With yeah. who is it? I can't remember. Who it uh, but I still went for uh, Mr. Logic from Viz. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Or, uh, or I thought one of the Mr. Men. I went for Mr. Nosy. Right, he's sticking yeah. his nose into everything, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh like that's that. a look at crime. Yeah, I do mean. you know what? It's one of Barnaby's favourite uh, books, Mr. Oh, Nosy. Mr. Nosy. Yeah. Oh, Mr. Nosy. Well, there's for Barnaby. I find it quite disturbing. Yeah. Like, he puts his hand, his nose round a fence to, and the carpenter whacks him on the nose with a hammer. Mean, isn't it? It's quite mean, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. It's all right. It's just been a bit interested in other people's lives. <laughs> Yeah, anyway. uh, there's a, yeah, something there. Right, what books would we recommend if people wanted to learn more about Becker and his ideas? I think a lot of his work is, you can get it in PDF form online. Yeah, you can. Uh, economics oh, of discrimination. Yeah, I'm going to share a treatise on Human the capital, treatise on the family. Um, active as a scholar. He was active as a scholar, pretty much, till he died. Yeah. yeah. If you want a precise and concise summary... And I've said it, mentioned it already. Niall Kastani's yes. brief history of economics. We love that book. Or is it a little history? A little of history economic, of economics. Yeah. Yep. But the chapter in there, the economics of everything, is a really good summary, in you know, relatively simple uh, form of uh, Becker's ideas. Yes. What have you gone for? Oh, and that Alex Tabrock article I mentioned earlier. Yeah. I think that's a really good one. Well, that we can Tom share. Tom Butler Bowden. We like his right. book, don't we? Fifty Economics Classics. Yeah, we do. Uh, like it. There's a there's a chapter on that. On right. human capital. Yeah. Um, the first time I ever came across Becker in a kind of a pop economics-y book was Tim Hartford's Logic of Life. Ah, oh, there's a good FT article uh, from Tim Hartford yeah. on Gary Becker. Well, the book is yeah, is yeah. really good. So, And he does, he, he interviews them, I think, in that. Yeah. Um, obviously, his own books we've talked about, Gary Becker, yeah. The Economics of Life. Um, he, with a guy called Richard Poser, or Pos- Posner, wrote a yeah. blog they came together to write a blog and those blogs were put together in a book called Uncommon Sense mm. so it's kind of quite interesting and there's mm. a book that was put together called The Economic Approach The Unpublished Writings of Gary Becker which right. seemed mildly interesting yeah. as I've already said I will post the IEA lecture online <laughs> but basically you can get loads of stuff on him yeah I might be able to get some YouTube videos of him speaking. Yes, you can. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. The, 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 the A lecture is a classic yeah, one of the. Yeah. Um, if Becker was a boxer, what would his walk-on music be and why? Well, because he sees economics everywhere. Everywhere by Fleetwood Mac. Oh, yeah. yeah. I want to be with you everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Uh, <laughs> Problem Child by ACDC. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, Black or White by Michael Jackson. You know, in, in <laughs> homage to his work on discrimination. Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> what have uh, you gone for? I went for the logical song by oh. Super Tramp. Oh, don't you know that one. Oh yeah, no, when he went on yeah. then, it's suddenly it's rung a bell. Oh, Human yeah. Capital by Bad Breeding. Oh wow. I've never heard of that song. Never heard of it. That's but a Google search. It's one, a proper it? like rocker. Like, I looked yeah. it up. Um Get Educated by a Carla. Now, Akala is, um, wrote a book that we recommended in our summer reading special. He wrote Natives, which is yeah. a superb book. And the Akala rap 
Like it's basically wraps up. Get Educated is really fantastic about yeah. all the virtues of education. Yeah. What were your ones again? Uh, what Everything. did I say? Everywhere by Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Problem Child by ACDC. Black or White by Michael Trice. I think we'll go Problem Child by ACDC. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah let's do that. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Right, it's Poetry Corner. Right. Ah, oh, I've just only thought that I haven't given you the first two lines. You're going to quickly pass it over yeah. and just read the first two lines and then, and then we're off. Okay. Right. Okay, there we are. Who is the man, the cost-benefit king, who put economics into everything? That, my friend, is Gary Becker. To powered economics, like Carol Decker. Ripped up the rule book right from the start and won a Nobel Prize for being so smart. He saw how incentives were the key to it all, in all parts of life, both big and small. To be a criminal or to have lots of kids. You weighed it all up in dollars or quids. The same is true for an education. It all came down to a calculation. And even workers' pay and discrimination could be understood by this crude equation. Some argued he took it too far and his ideas became a crowbar to get economics into all manner of places that some considered were safe spaces for subjects like anthropology. But many, of course, would disagree. Okay, yeah, well done. (laughs) Thoughtful. So, do we like him? Would we have a beer with him or a Chicago... Yeah, Chicago cocktail. Cocktail with him. Would well, we? He's an interesting guy, isn't he? Like Friedman, it's, it's something relentless about him and the way he pursues the sort of logical implications of his ideas. Mm. Um, there's quite a generous article, I think you mentioned by... Uh, sorry, I mentioned by Tim Harford. And there's a little quote I to read from there. Um, Becker's view of the world was not that economics was the last word on all human activity. It was that no matter what the subject under consideration economics would always have something insightful to add. And for mm-hmm. many years, it fell to Becker to find that insight. And what I liked about that is, I think there's something quite generous about that. And maybe, certainly in some of my criticisms, maybe I've been less than generous. I think Tim Harford's saying, look, he's not saying economics has everything to say about every human topic, but it has something to say. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's um, sort of where I'd like to leave him. I'd like to play handball with him. Yes. I've never played handball and we could be educated, yeah? We could have maybe after a Chicago cocktail or, well, probably the other way around, shouldn't we? Handball then. (laughs) Maybe we could like Friedman and him on opposing sides and we could be like, pick me, pick me. Do you know what I think (laughs) Becker would do though? What? About like, we're saying would we have a beer with him? He'd do a cost-benefit analysis of us and think it's not worth it. That's, that's my point of view. <laughs> anyway, right. If we were out with him, though, yeah, what one question would we ask him and why? I think I might ask him if he still holds with all his views, like the economics of discrimination. There's quite a lot of data now, sort of further down the line. Does he still hold that what he said, you know, back in the day was, is it still valid? Yeah. But I think he would. Yeah. <laughs> Because it's interesting, that Alex Sabrock article, I think he was out with Becker and sort of saying, look, the crime thing, you know, it's not, the evidence doesn't bear it out. And he was just completely doubling down on all his points. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, what would you ask him? Well, he was made a professor of sociology. Yeah. And so my question to him would be, 
Well, it's kind of it's combined. Did he consider himself to be an economist or a sociologist? Hmm. And then a follow-up question is, you know this because you've been head of sociology. Yeah. Um, how would he view sociology as being a soft subject yeah. or being seen as a soft subject? And, uh, I mean, there's a continual debate about this. Um, there's a great policy exchange article, which is the hard truth about soft subjects improving transparency about the implications of A-level subject choice. Now, even though Oxford and Cambridge, who obviously, you know, they don't have sociology on their list, the data sort of reveals what they think about sociology. So in the data here, let me just have a little look. It says here, there's a bit about how more A-levels were accepted in Latin at Oxford and business studies, law, psychology, and sociology combined. Wow. So in terms of what they accept about stuff. It says about sociology, it says, although they do not appear on the Cambridge or LSE non-preferred subject list, uh, we looked at sociology and psychology because of their popularity. Okay. Um, these subjects comprise 10.2% of all A-levels studied by 16 to 18-year-olds at school. At research-intensive universities, these subjects comprised an average of 6.7% of A-levels accepted, mm. uh, with 81% of all research-intensive universities falling below the 10.2 average mm. uptake for schools. Uptake was particularly low for Imperial, Oxford and St Andrews. The only thing I'd say about this whole debate, there's whole schools of sociology, particularly when um, Becker would be writing... American sociology is quite different from the way sociology is taught and researched in British universities. Very data-driven. And would also be, there would be sort of socially conservative sociology. So I think it's quite different in America. So I think the field differs. So when you study, for example, the sociology of crime, even at A-level, some of the American thinkers, they would have very empirical sort of data-driven sort of work. Anyway, we're digressing here. It is, in, but yeah. I do think it's interesting. It's like there's a, some data here saying like 15% of all A-level examinations are taken in independent schools, but only mm. 2% of sociology and 6% of psychology yeah. A-level choose are in these schools. So there is this viewpoint, isn't it? Yeah. Social, and yet we have discovered throughout, like starting from Veblen probably. Yeah. I mean, like, we could probably go even, but like Veblen was like the key yeah. for me, like, and you thought, wow. So, and then who is the one who sourced economics as a subset of sociology, which really made me laugh? Oh, and that was a couple of, I think, that, was that Walrus or someone like that? There's yeah. some, one of those. And you're yeah. like, no way. Yeah. You know, so like this idea of sociology being a soft subject yeah. by, by independent schools. And I've yeah. seen it banded around by Leah Struss at a kind of a policy exchange event about why would you want to study these soft subjects like social? And you're like, you're mad. I mean, she's yeah. mad. Yeah. But like, you know, I would love to hear, I mean, I know, I get what you mean about America and Britain, yeah. but it'd be interesting. Does Becker, yeah. how would, how would he view that? that? Yeah. And, and cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. Should you study it? You know, it? should you study it? Yeah. It all, come, it all comes around. <laughs> okay. Who is it next time or what's happening? What's going on? That's a mysterious coming up, isn't it, Gav? Well, potentially going to do a play, which I've been talking about for a while. Yeah. Gavin has written a play. Yeah. Called, uh, I feel a bit like Ernie Wise. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's to not play what, what I wrote. Uh, that's not what a play is called. called. Called Rational. Yeah. Yeah. It's a two-hander. 
we're going to take it to Edinburgh <laughs> when Pete's retired. <laughs> uh, so that's that. Yeah. And uh, or we're going to maybe look at uh, Engels. Yeah. Beatrice Webb, we talked Beatrice about. Beatrice Webb. Yeah. But whatever it is, it will be utterly fascinating. It will indeed. Anyway, uh, we'd like to thank you for listening and hope that you'll listen to our next podcast. Uh, we'd also like to thank our friend Nick, as always, who gives us technical advice with regards to podcasting. And do remember to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and now Blue Sky at Economics in 10. Or you can contact us by email at economicsin10 at gmail.com. And Pete will tell you, we've had a lovely one recently, haven't we? Yeah, we have, yeah. We love getting emails. We love getting emails. You, you did mention Mastodon. Is that sort of died God, down? it's gone. It's gone, has it? the economics Mastodon, the boat can run it anymore. <laughs> yes, and that's gone. But we are on Blue Sky. Blue Sky. It's Blue Sky, the new Mastodon. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, we do really like getting your emails. And, and can I apologise for the hiatus between uh, this episode and our last due to unforeseen circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. all the best. 